Alright, how's everybody today? Doing well, last class of the week, hopefully, for, for people. Getting there? Okay. Somebody apparently is tired. I think Rachel is getting tired, is, is my summation. Um, good. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry you're tired, and I, I do hope this is your, your last class this week. Um, oh, five meetings? What, what do you have five meetings with? Mm hmm. All right. Well, uh, that, that that sucks for you. I'm I'm gonna go up, um, go drive up this weekend to the mountains and hang out. So, I will say my life is right now better than yours, Charles. My apologies, but <laughs> okay, good. Um, but hopefully this will be kind of a fun class. It's it's gonna be easy. The First class, the first section I did this morning, um, and just to start to, if there's a little noise in the background, I, I'm hearing it. I don't know if anybody else is. Um, I, hopefully it won't interfere too much with what we're trying to do. But if it's a bother, please let me know and I'll, I'll try and play with my sound to make it better. Um, but anyway, so hopefully this will be a kind of a more enjoyable class. In the first section, we didn't even get to, to Peter Brook. Uh, because we spent so much time with Scansion um, and with Shakespeare. So we might find time to, to get to Peter Brook. If not, uh, hold on to him for Monday's class. I, I don't think that reading was too difficult. And since he is, uh, you know, since he is sort of citing Artaud a lot and working from that model, hopefully it'll, it'll kind of stay with you more. Um, but whatever we're really this this week and going forward going to be really worrying about Shakespeare and worrying about the the project you're going to be doing and so we're going to try and touch in every week and maybe more than once a week on the project and on different things you can do to to get it going um, my hope is with this project everybody gets an A because most of this is um, it's work but it's a lot of a lot of fun work and so hopefully you'll be kind of eager and excited to do this. Uh, and the first step in this is probably the part of the project that's most alien to you, I would guess, is the scansion part of it, which is uh, scoring the text. I'm wondering here, has anybody scored a Shakespeare text before? You have, okay. In, in what context, Charles? Okay, very good. Okay, excellent. Um, so hopefully some of this will be will be old hat, uh, but you know, maybe not. Maybe a refresher will be will be good. But uh, anyway, let's get get into it. So I've posted a worksheet, a blank verse worksheet, to the week four content folder. So if people can pull that up, I'm going to start introducing it and and, uh, and talking it through. But if you could just go into Husky CT, week four as you like it, there should be a 
think it's I think it says worksheet um, scanning worksheet or, or scoring the text worksheet. Uh, if it isn't there, please let me know and I'll I'll drop it in there. But I'm very confident it's there. Okay. So while you guys do that, I'm going to just start introducing kind of the basics here. So. Uh, Shakespeare writes in what's called blank verse. Blank verse is synonymous with something called iambic pentameter. Um, does anybody know? Well, I'll stop asking questions because you're probably all trying to pull up the worksheet. Um, what iambic pentameter is, it's a, it's the verse that most resembles actual speaking patterns, at least according to Shakespeare and in Shakespeare's day. Um, the reason for this is I am, that's the type of syllabic relationship, is a mixture of unstressed and stressed syllables, and pentameter is the amount of feet in a line. So let's get into that a little more for people who don't know what I'm talking about. Um, the first word when describing a verse, so iambic pentameter, the, the first word I am, um, it's going to refer to either two or three syllables, right, collected together. Um, so put any two or three syllables together, that's going to be the, that first word. Iams are unstressed, stressed. And, you know, the, the, the line to be or not to be. What I just said right there were three Iams, to be or not to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so that's, that is the base or the foundation upon which Shakespeare works. The most fundamental, basic kind of script scoring or, or kind of uh, writing that we see in Shakespeare is going to be da 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 based on the I am, unstressed, stressed to be. Okay? The second word, pentameter, refers to the amount of iams in the line. Penta means five, so there's there's five of them. Um, and there's obviously variations in here in how the stresses are collected, but typically what you're going to see, or what you're going to imagine you're looking for when approaching a Shakespeare text to score it is unstressed, stressed unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. And that's, that's the design. However, there is probably, there are probably more variations of that form than actual consistency within that form. So if you approach any Shakespeare text just with iambic pentameter and you, you kind of just force it in there, it's going to be really awkward. It's going to sound bad. There are more more syllables often than 10. So you, in some cases, you, you won't even be able to use that form. Um, but you should think when approaching the, the Shakespeare lines, iambic pentameter, okay, now I have to vary it. Now I have to change it up because of the, you know, whatever the requirements of the text are. Okay. Um, other type of syllabic relationships. So you approach the text, you see it's not iambic pentameter, you want to make some changes. Here are some options you can make in terms of the amount of stresses in the line or the relationship between stressed and unstressed syllables. You could do the trochee. 
A troche is the reverse of the I am. I am's unstressed, stressed. A troche is stressed, unstressed. Right? That is that's perfectly acceptable. Sometimes at the end of lines, Shakespeare will uh, Shakespeare will reverse the I am, uh, and they call that a trochaic inversion, and and um, it's usually a point of uh, of kind of great stress or great excitement, right? And if you catch a trochaic inversion, you can, in your project, write about why you as an actor are going to make the choice to change from an I am to a trochee. There's the pyrrhic. Pyrrhic is two syllables, unstressed, unstressed. Um, that's less common. More common, the spondy is stressed, stressed. So very often when a character is very excited and or, or yelling out after someone, you might see a line start with a spondy. Spondies often begin lines, right? And that's just stress, stress. Okay. Now there's also three syllable lines. And actually, if you look at rhetorical books from the from way back in the day, classical texts, you'll see sometimes they have um, lines with 10 metric feet in them. Let's not worry about that. We're not even going up to four. We'll stay at three. And three metrical feet are also useful for you in scoring your script. Excuse me. In scoring your script. Um, the most common of this is, is probably the dactyl. Stressed, unstressed, unstressed. Um, and the dactyl, this is where they get it from digit. Uh, it's the Greek word for finger. And you could imagine your uh, your finger, right? Uh, large, small, small. That's that's where the word dactyl comes from. And that can also be a useful, too. A useful tool. If you come to a line and you see, um, you know, there's, there's two unstresses in a row, just words that shouldn't be stressed, maybe put a stress on the syllable before and treat three syllables as one foot, as one dactyl foot. The anapest, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, again, we're kind of the reverse of the, the dactyl. And the amphibronch is three syllables, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. Now, moving into the three syllables, as I said before, when things don't seem to make sense, in an iambic or trochaic way, join three syllables together and make a single foot and see how that affects your reading of the line. Okay? Now, getting into types of meters, they have meters down here. I'm going to go into that because more than anything, the amount of feet in a line sort of shapes the way poetry is... Um, the way poetry is classified, right? The genre of a poetry uh, of poetry comes often out of the amount of metrical feet in a line. So let's take a look at, at how some of that sounds. Um, here's from John Milton. Now this is uh, how many years? This is about 54 years after Shakespeare dies on his blindness. Um, when I consider how my life is spent, air half my days in this dark world and wide. So here we go. When I consider how my life is spent, air half my days in this dark world and wide. Perfect iambic pentameter from Mr. Milton. Um, you know, so he's he's inheriting Shakespeare's tradition and, and carrying it on, right? This is towards the end of his life when John Milton started to go blind. Uh, and so 
you could see here, you know, writing it out. I, I just did it with, uh, I highlighted and boldened um, the, the second syllable here in order to, to demonstrate it. Um, but yeah, perfect I ams. It's, it's, when you read it, it sounds natural. If I were to say, when I consider how my life is spent, right? I, I start to sound like, like William Shatner. Uh, so the I ams then match a kind of more natural pace. And I understand that this isn't free verse where you are just speaking like how a human would speak. There's still constraints placed upon you by Shakespeare. Um, but think of those constraints as, as being informative rather than irritating, right? Like Shakespeare is making the decision he is making to tell you something about the character. And so always, always take that to your, the decisions you're making in your metrics. Okay, now here's another example of uh, kind of mixing it up. This is uh, iambic feet, but mixed meter, right? So the, the meter is changing in every line. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem. Appareled in celestial light, the glory and freshness of a dream. Okay. Um, yeah, and so you could see again that that the iambic pentameter is probably the most uh, most speech-like. But when we get to the second line in Wordsworth's work, the earth and every common sight, it gets a little more sing-songy, right? And then we get to the diameter. To me, did seem. I mean, the diameter is you know whatever. It's it's a connector. It's almost not poetry. Um, but you you could see with the the tetrameter. Uh, how how kind of sing-songy it is. And that's a lot of like lyric poetry, especially in the Romantic era, is using only four feet, right? Tetra for four. Um, and it, it reduces the, it reduces and constrains the way we speak, creating a kind of feel of poetry. Um, and so Shakespeare is often not doing tetrameter, he's, he's doing pentameter because he still wants to kind of lend his verse, the, the voice of a person just speaking. Um, good. Now we could see the, the importance of iams when we get to this Lord Byron poem, the anapestic tetrameter. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. There once was a man from Nantucket, right? We, th this is the limerick version, right? Anapest tetrameter are what limericks are made of, which is, you know, they're, they're so easy to identify for that reason. Um, and that, you know, that also has a very distinct uh, non-speaking characteristic to it, right? Um, and then getting more into the tetrameter, here is The Tiger by William Blake. Uh, this is, all our examples are romantic or, or post-Shakespeare, but, but that's fine. You can see how these forms persist. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. Again, this is short, short lines, tetrameter, very short lines, and the trochees are really unnatural. 
not unnatural in the sense that they're not appealing or fun to listen to, but no one talks like this, right? No one, if somebody was describing the tiger to you and they said, tiger, tiger, you would think that was a, you know, a, a crazy person or a child. Um, and in fact, Blake is trying to write childlike poems, but for adults. So the poems are doing complex things, but they sound almost like childhood rhymes. And so the these examples I, I've given are set up to show why pentameter actually matters, right? It's it's not some arbitrary choice to annoy the bejesus out of you. Uh, it, it it is designed to sound in a particular way, and when you move away from that, you create a different sound. And so, when approaching Shakespeare, assume a sort of perfect genius. Um, this is this is obviously not true. Everybody's flawed. Shakespeare, you know, he's not a perfect genius or whatnot. But if you assume that, and you assume the decisions he is making are informative rather than accidental or convenient, then you, as a, a person who's scoring the script, as a person who has to deal with the script, um, can look for a solution. Can look for a way in order to make the verse live or inform all right um so i'm going to pause a second and see how everyone is doing how any questions so far okay good um that was a lot yeah and we're, we're going to practice this too so we also get some other kind of incon inconveniences or variations. Um, one is catalexis, and you can see that there. The catalexis is the incomplete foot at the end of the line, right? So the the last syllable and the lines above are kind of alone and stress. One second, let me turn my notifications off. Sorry, my computer was beeping. Anyway, um, the catalexis, it's an incomplete foot at the end of the line. Um, typically, the last syllable in the line is stressed, right? So we, we drive to the end of the line right? when, when doing Shakespeare. Actors sort of use their breath to get to the end of the line. Um, if the last line, if, if the foot rather is incomplete, then we have what appears to be an unstressed or in, in some cases even extra syllable right um and so you as somebody who's scoring a script has to figure out what to do with that if you encounter that sometimes this can be a um sometimes this can be what's called a feminine ending a feminine ending is when the last syllable is unstressed and typically it it goes along with um like 11 or 12 beats in a line. So instead of the 10 beats of the iambic pentameter, you get this this weird 11th at the end. And then think about why that is. The reason um, kind of professional actors often give when I've, I've you know talked to them or heard them interviewed is that it's a it's a point of high emotion. So that it's that we're not ending in this kind of definitive stop that the emotion is is kind of continuing. It's out of control, right? The meter itself is not controlled, reflecting the emotions of the character. So the fact that you have this incomplete foot, you have this unstressed added syllable at the end, um, 
you know, it, it tells you how the character is feeling and maybe even how to play that character. So as an actor working on this project, if you notice this, you you can write up, you know, here's a, a here's a catalexis or an, a, fem, a feminine ending. Um, the reason for this, I think, is that, you know, whomever you're, you're, you're playing, um, I think that he or she is kind of so exasperated by the conditions that they're, they're going to, they're going to keep talking. They can't control themselves anymore and use that as an insight to say what he or she is saying right here is a, is particularly emotionally vulnerable. Okay. Um, and you can see here, at a catalexis is a complete foot at the end of the line. That's just normal. Um, another thing, Caesura. Caesura is a pause or break in a line of poetry, often in the middle of the line. To be or not to be, that is the question. And and so you want to think of your lines typically as having a single Caesura somewhere in them. Um, and so the line sort of breaks in half when, when you think of Shakespeare lines. Uh, and where you pick your Caesura can can tell you something. And sometimes you can choose not to put the Caesura there, right? And and justify that. If you're not going to put a Caesura in a line, why are you not putting a Caesura in the line? Right? Why are you not pausing? Why do people not pause? In what kind of emotional state are people so that they don't pause? Again, this goes to kind of the, the heightened or excited emotion. Now, on the other hand, if you want to do more than one Caesura, uh, that that's also atypical, and so what is the situation in which a character is pausing a lot? Often the script will lend you a hand via punctuation. You'll see a few commas or a few semicolons possibly inside the line. This might be to indicate that there's mo, mo uh, excuse me I can't speak today. There's there's multiple pause points. So what state of mind is a character in that he or she has to keep pausing, right? I, I, my guess would be more contemplative, thinking things through, working things out. Yeah. Next up, enjambment. Enjambment is a line that's not complete. It's, it's not completed its meaning, and it's probably not ending with a punctuation. Um, and so it reads into the next line. So here we are. We are such stuff as dreams are made of and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Now, um, typically lines have some sort of punctuation at the end, and if they don't, that tells you something, right? That, that prompts you as an actor to make a decision about how to read Shakespeare. So you have a few options when you come to something like this. Uh, and I'll, I'll read in a few different ways, and we'll see what you guys think. I'll be able to <laughs> get you guys to talk again. I've been talking this whole time, actually. Um, we are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Okay, so with that decision, I, I paused at the end of the word, right? I, I put a little more stress on the end of the word. What did people think of that? Did that seem awkward or did that seem informative?
Okay, great. Okay, let's try uh, the the other reading of it. And this this is where I enjamp it. I'm just going to go around. We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Okay, how did that sound compared to the first reading? Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Right. There there yeah, so it it speaks to what is the character trying to do. Is he's trying to tell you, yeah, that this is how it is or trying to inform somebody of something or is this person in a state of mind where they're they're kind of caught up in the the, the they're caught up in this reflection. Um and so you as a person approaching this project, you have two options there. Yeah, and, and neither of them are going to be wrong. The thing that will lose you points is if you don't make a decision, right? If you don't notice there's enjambment going on and, and I have to respond to that. Right? Good. Okay, so let's keep going then. Ah, couplet. So couplets, so I don't know how many people here have read Shakespearean sonnets, um, but Shakespearean sonnets differ from... Um, from Petrarchan sonnets and Italian sonnets uh, for a number of reasons, one of them being they end in a couplet. And a couplet is two lines that rhyme, an AA rhyme. Uh, very often, Shakespearean set speeches or soliloquies will also end in couplets. The example I have here is drawn from the, the 30th sonnet. Uh, but if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. So friend end is, is the rhyme. Um, couplets, uh, you know, are, are kind of definitive. There's a clear and distinct end of thought, you know, and, and it, it's what directors sometimes call a button. A button is like this, this distinct ending of a scene or ending of a beat or moment within a scene. Right. And so couplets function in, in that way. Friend, end. Right. We're, we're closing this thought. We're closing this action that the words are taking. Okay? Um, yeah. So just, just recognize that. Notice your couplets. Okay, next up. The OED. And I don't know if I asked you guys Wednesday. I feel like I did. Uh, does anybody have familiarity with what the OBD, the Oxford English Dictionary, is? You, you're free to guess. Sure, please. It, I I would agree with that that assessment. Yeah, it is the ultimate dictionary. Um, it's so famous. They made a movie about it, right? The the, the Madman and the Professor, I think it's called. Uh, it was a book, and then they made it into a movie with Sean Penn. Um, but anyway, that's that's not that important. Uh, the the Oxford English Dictionary, which you have access to as a UConn student, just type UConn Library OED into your Google search. Is a dictionary that not only gives the definition of a lot of words, uh, but it also gives you the history of the definition, 
So it will track how the definition has changed throughout the years um, with, with examples from literature. This is important for Shakespeare, not only because occasionally you're going to run upon words you don't know, but you're going to run upon words that you know but have changed definition since the day of Shakespeare. So this is obviously important because um, if the word has a different meaning than what you're familiar with, the, the meaning of the line changes. So uh, here's an example here. Uh, this is from Merchant of Venice, and this is um, the, the young character speaking to Antonio, and he's saying, you know, how much he, how much he owes Antonio, because Antonio is supporting him. I owe you much, and like a willful youth, that which I owe is lost. Now we see the word owed, owe repeated twice. Excuse me. <laughs> we see the word owe repeated. We see it twice. In the first case, owe means what? Yeah, there's a debt. Um, it could be monetary. It could be like, I owe you a good deed, but whatever. There's a debt. What does the second owe mean? Yeah, yeah. Just, just you don't have to ask permission. Um, um, go for it. No, not quite. No, so that's not quite it. What owe means in the second one, that which I owe is lost. He hasn't lost his debt. You know, owe here means own. That which I owe or own is lost. So I owe you a lot just like a person who has lost all the things he owns, right? I've lost everything I own. I'm indebted to you for whatever, my my survival. Um, so, oh, here, the the joke or the, the rhetoric, maybe it's not a joke, but the rhetoric that Shakespeare is using is he's using two definitions of the word, to be in debt and to own something. However, the second definition is lost to us. We don't use the word owe that, that way anymore. So by using the OED, you can dissect that line or figure it out. Another example, which is, is not on the worksheet, but I'll just say it because it's, it's famous, is um, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore thou Romeo? Right, so Romeo, Romeo, you, excuse me, <laughs> Romeo, Romeo, where art thou Romeo? I, I screwed it up. Um, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he. It's it's like why are you called? Right. If you have to do a translation, quote unquote translation of it, it's like, you know, why are you called this? Uh, you know, it doesn't mean, yeah, exactly what you said, Charles. It doesn't mean like, where where are you? Uh, and so the, the whole meaning of that changes. Right. Juliet isn't on the, the balcony yelling for, you know, whispering for Romeo to come. Where are you? She's she's reflecting on the nature of the conflict that separates them. OK, so it's. It's important to use the OED for that for those purposes. All right, moving on. Um, good. So, what I want everybody to do now is 
you should by this point at least have the sheet. And here is what I've given you is a selection of lines, a, a part of a speech from The Winter's Tale. What I want you to try and do is, um, until I get back to you, so I'll give you, how about five minutes? Five minutes, try and scan as much of that speech as possible. All right, so just use, just use the bold function on your Microsoft Word to, to do it. Um, it doesn't have to be particularly complex. I'm not asking you to hand it in right now. But take five minutes to try and do that, and we'll compare it to what Patrick Stewart is doing with it when when we get back. All right? Okay. So let's go for it. Um, does anybody want to volunteer to read or, or describe their, let's say, first three lines? Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, I think that that's really cool, yeah. It's an inch thick, knee deep, or head, and ears a forked one. Um, it, so you could also go like, go, play, boy, play. So almost start it with a spondy and then switch back into the, the I am system. Um, system, I think that's the wrong word. But uh, great, I think that's, a, that's, that's smart and, and well observed too. Anybody else want to give it a try? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> inch thick, knee deep, or head, and ears a forked Mm. Yeah, it, it's hard. Um, yeah, fork like ending on a spondy, right? Yeah, it, it seems like you need to emphasize one, right? <laughs> if you're going to end on an exclamation point. And so when you get to that, you might have like, well, at least I know I have to stress the word one. Do I also want to stress forked? That, that, you know, that's a question. But let's see what uh, Patrick Stewart does. I'm going to share this with you. It didn't let me share last time, so... Okay, good. I should be back, hopefully. Um, good. So, you can see there the, the kind of choices. It, it seemed like, um, Stuart, in terms of uh, what Rachel and uh, Kip... Oops, I lost you guys. Oh, here I am. Okay. What Rachel and Kimberly mentioned, the, um, the sort of forked one... That there was a spondy there that Stewart did it, but you could see the disagree the uh, the conversation John Barton and, and Stewart had about the colon in go play boy play. Do we take a pause there or do we just go through, right? And and Stewart chose I'm going to ignore that caesura because I'm going to overrun it, right? We we he says we often do this when we're talking when we're emotional we overrun the line, so you know he's he's going to choose to ignore that. But he's not ignoring it in the sense of he's just talking. He's looking at the colon, he's noticing what Shakespeare is doing, and he's making a decision. Um, and you could also see, especially towards the end of the line there, the end of the, excuse me, the speeches, uh, the, he's, um, he's end-stopping a lot more. Should we all despair that have revolted wise the tenth of mankind would hang themselves? Right? He's, he's making those choices at the beginning to, to end jam, to run on, to go over the Cesaras, but towards the end, he's uh, often choosing to, to end stop, to stop or pause, even though there's no punctuation there. Um, and this is, of course, balanced. And, oh, I know we're out of time, but I'll, 
I'll be quick. This is, of course, balanced, as he said, with the the need to actually have enough breath to say the lines. So it's the, the nature of the character balanced with the actual physical requirements of being an actor who has to, you know, like breathe occasionally. Um, and, and that's often a check, too. All right. Uh, so any questions about all of that? And all of those videos are posted in the content folder for week four. So there's, there's a lot of them. Um, and the transcription of that conversation, uh, that entire conversation that you see in, in the second video, um, not just with Stuart, but with a number of other actors, including uh, Ian McClellan, uh, is also posted. So take a look at that if that helps. Um, and I will... I'll stay on here for about another five or ten minutes or so in case somebody wants to stay on and has any questions. Otherwise, thank you and enjoy your weekend.